Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Bull Realty. For commercial real estate brokerage services in the Southeast U.S. or in Atlanta, reach out to me. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. Well, we have a special show for you today. We have one of my favorite guests over the years that we've had on the show, some dude. No, <laughs> Ryan Severino. He is Chief Economist with BGO, Bentle Green Oak. Ryan, good to see you again. It's always nice to see you, Michael. It's yeah. nice to be back in the studio. It, it mm-hmm. does feel like a sort of homecoming. Yeah, there you go. We got some dude here in the studio. <laughs> I'm kidding, Ryan, because he said I could just introduce him as some dude. He'd be fine. Uh, but a lot of you guys uh, and ladies out there around the country have seen Ryan on the show over the years. You know we're in for a treat. And and Ryan, we finished up 2023. Transaction volume was down. A lot of folks kind of had their, uh, uh, were on pause, right? Trying to figure out what was going on. Then the Fed came out, what was it, December, and said, hey, maybe we're not going to raise rates anymore. Was that significant change? Was there a change happening there? Here we are at the beginning of February, end of January 2024. I think it is. Mm-hmm. When I look at the market, I see the Fed is playing a really important role, historically and in this cycle, especially this cycle with the Fed raising so aggressively in such a short period of time. If you look back at the market historically, when the Fed is in tightening mode to a point that you made, which I think is a great point, the market tends to take a step back and say, oh, what does this mean for pricing? What does this mean for investment returns? Mm -hmm. And when the Fed's moving aggressively, people really are unsure about that. They tend to take a deep breath and wait a little bit. But the Mm -hmm. good news is what you see empirically is that once the Fed stops raising rates, real estate returns tend to revert back into positive territory pretty quickly. So we don't need the Fed to start cutting. Mm-hmm. We just need them to signal clearly enough that they're done and for the market to believe that. And fingers crossed, but maybe not holding my breath on this, I think December is probably that moment where the Fed themselves were sure mm-hmm. that they weren't going to raise anymore. I'm not sure that they're going to start aggressively tightening the way the futures market thinks, but I feel pretty confident at this point, unless something really idiosyncratic happens, they're probably done raising. And I think that's a pretty good green light for the market as we think about 24 into 25 eventually. It's, and we've seen that uh, brokers kind of on the front line. We've seen people more interested in buying and selling. It's like, okay, now we can kind of figure out what's what's going on. And and when you look at uh, interest rates, you know, if you can get interest rates at between six and 7%, while that seems high if you've been in the industry 10 years, if you've been in the industry 35 right. years, like me, uh, it seems like it's a pretty good rate, right? Yeah, perspective really matters on yeah, this. Yeah. And I think one of the things that will, will certainly help mm-hmm. is a little bit of a recalibration of expectations. I think that there are issues, mm-hmm. and I, I joke about this a lot, but I mean it seriously, there are issues with the fact that we now have an industry where more than a generation of people haven't really lived through a normal recession, because we had a very strange balance sheet GFC recession and we're an even stranger pandemic recession. And that skewed, I think, their perceptions of what the industry should be like in terms of where returns are generated 
and what the cost of debt capital should be. Yeah. We should not have the Fed be cutting interest rates to zero. <laughs> if that's happening, something's really going wrong in the world. Right. I, I would like to get back to what, to me, is a more normal interest rate environment. And if that means interest rates are higher than they've been for a while, I, I can deal with that. But if, if anyone's out there thinking, oh, well, when we'll just wait for the Fed to cut back to zero or one again, I'm not sure we should be cheerleaders for that sort of thing. Yeah. That to me is is the world gone awry. And I'd like to have some normalcy after two of the strangest recessions in history over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. That makes sense. So you don't think we're going to see significant changes on interest rates kind of in 2024 then? I think it's going to be tentative at first. Mm -hmm. I really think the Fed doesn't want to start cutting until they're really confident that inflation is headed to target. I think it is, and I think the data is, is to an extent misrepresenting what actual inflation is, but the Fed has different risks associated with their views than, than I do as a semi-private citizen. Yeah. I think it's coming probably in the latter half of the year, and I think once those rate starts cuts start to come, mm. that almost becomes um, like a snowball effect. It really starts to build on itself. My, my expectation is some hesitancy in the first half of the year while the market gains enough confidence in this. I think as they start to see more confidence toward the latter half of the year, that's when I think that snowballing effect starts to to kick in a little a little harder. Yeah. And you know, and the the numbers are all out for 2023. It looks like transaction volume, depending on the sector and geographic area and price ranges, significantly down, maybe 50% if you want to use that number. What would you expect then for 2024 for transaction volume to do trend-wise? You know, I think we should expect a modest rebound. Mm -hmm. I, connecting the dots between what we were talking about, in a world where the Fed is raising aggressively and you don't really know where they're going to stop, it's really hard to have transparency on pricing. Yeah. And as an investor, especially now sitting back on the side of the, the market that I sit on again, I'm not surprised that a bunch of investors said, you know what, time out. I don't know exactly where the ball is going to stop rolling. I don't know exactly where the bottom is on pricing. I would rather take a beat and not make a mistake. The, the analogy in my mind is I don't want to try to catch a falling knife. I don't even want to try to catch a bouncing knife. Mm -hmm. I would rather wait until I'm sure that the knife is done falling, bouncing around mm -hmm. before I try to grab it. And I think more of the market is going to have confidence this year that the knife is done falling. It's a little bit of a harsh analogy, I admit, but that, that they don't have to worry about it as much. And again, as the year progresses, I think you'll see that confidence build. I think moderately more transaction volume this year. I don't think it's going to be like flipping a switch and we'll just have this deluge of volume flooding into the market. Yeah. But I do expect people to have more confidence on pricing and more confidence to make an investment than they probably have had over the last 12 to 18 months or so. That's fair. What do you expect for, for banks, for, for lenders? Obviously, they've been pretty cautious and some of them kind of cutting back on CRE loans and, and also uh, maybe not being as aggressive to foreclose on properties and trying to work out with borrowers. What do you think we'll see banks do in 2024? I think there's definitely a dislocation in the market mm -hmm. because I think banks are pretty flush on their balance sheets in terms of Commercial real estate lending, depending upon the size of the bank, it usually constitutes a pretty significant portion of their lending activity, their actual balance sheet. I don't think they want to be out of the game completely, but I think there are two things. One, 
definitely how full their balance sheets are. I think they're going to be more selective about that because they're they're already pretty full up. The other thing is, to your point, I still think there are shoes to drop associated with the performance of some of the loans on these balance sheets. I think there are a lot of lenders out there, and I, and I hate to say you know, extend and pretend because that sounds a little bit condescending. Mm -hmm. But I do think there are some lenders out there that are hoping to an extent that looser capital markets with the Fed moving forward, maybe bail some of these deals out, deals Mm -hmm. that might otherwise have to refinance in a really challenging market environment. If they wait long enough, might be able to refinance in a less challenging market environment. Not all of them, mind you. I do think that there is more distress in the system that's coming, especially in certain property types, which we can discuss. But I think that's where the banks, to a large extent, find themselves. They've done a lot of lending. Their balance sheets are pretty full. They know there are probably some other shoes to drop that they might not be able to push off, I don't want to say indefinitely, but again, into the into a future where it's a little bit easier to refinance. Yeah. Um, that to me suggests that there is a bit of a dislocation and an opportunity for non-traditional lenders to step into that space mm-hmm. while that market is, is dislocated for a while. Yeah, and let's talk about that. It seems to be a lot of money being raised for distressed assets. That, but we're just not seeing a lot of it come to market yet, right? Yeah, I think, again, there's this acknowledgement, maybe it's a tacit acknowledgement, mm-hmm. that if we wait long enough, maybe the mm-hmm. market environment will be good enough to bail us out of some trouble. I don't think everyone's going to be able to play that game, which is yeah. why I do think that there's more distress coming. And I, mm-hmm. I do think there will be more distress opportunities for investors. And I think the capital raise that's out there, I think it was much more of a greater intent mm-hmm. this cycle than what we saw, say, coming out of the GFC, where there was still some reticence, I think, to to touch the third rail of, of some of these distressed deals. I, I don't think that's going to be the case, mm-hmm. but we might be in a situation where it is a pretty fraught and competitive market environment between the capital chasing those distressed deals and the availability of those distressed deals, at mm-hmm. least until um, the rubber really hits the road with with some of these deals and they, they really have to, to give in and face reality. That's when I think you might see a little more opportunism on the part of some of these uh, investors that have gone out and raised capital specifically for those strategies. Yeah, and it, it seems one of the differences seems to me is the kind of the performance of a lot of these commercial real estate properties, right? When you look at the great financial recession, you look at today, like, look, re, you know, retail seems to be overall doing well, uh, industrial just doing really well overall. There's some some problem areas, uh, you know, a lot of the hotels doing well, uh, senior st- housing starting to do better. But I want to key in on one that obviously everybody knows it's not doing well and your thoughts there and on the office market. Having said that, there's obviously a lot of office doing extremely well. Class, A lot of the Class A and, and trophy buildings are doing well. Um, and a lot of the smaller buildings in good areas are doing extremely well. And of course, the long-term lease, big credit tenant buildings doing well. But overall, there's a lot of vacancy, a lot of a distress uh, out there in the office, especially in, in the larger uh, cities like like New York, right? So, what do you expect for the turmoil here in in the office sector, and and might how long might it last? You know what it reminds me of. Any any longtime listeners mm-hmm. will probably remember us mm-hmm. talking about this uh, 11, 12 years ago. To an extent, it reminds me of the way people thought about retail. Mm-hmm. They painted with a very broad brush. They tarred and feathered the entire property sector. And I didn't think that was appropriate then. And I don't think it's appropriate for office now. I'm, I'm not 
sugarcoating any of what's going on. Yeah. But I think you're right. There are parts of the market that are doing well that will continue to do well. If you have newer properties, which have really garnered almost all of the net absorption over the last four years, mm -hmm. amenitized properties, well-located, that I'm not really worried about because I think the death of the office has been greatly exaggerated. But I'll be honest and say there is a swath of that market that was struggling even before the pandemic. I used to go in and, and, and talk to investors and landlords at the time, and it would be a frequent conversation. What do we do with this property? Do we sell the dream to somebody else? Do we capex it and try to be competitive? I, I think those that were on the fence probably got pushed off the fence a bit by, mm -hmm. by the pandemic. But I think it's fair to say that there is a big part of the inventory that was going to struggle one way or another. The pandemic probably accelerated that process and they're probably going to have to get raised or converted into something else. And I'm not naive enough to have been around the block more than a few times in this industry. Conversions are not as easy as, I think the press is catching up to the reality that it's not a slam dunk to convert an office into a, yeah. a residential property. But I do think that, that to use a, a phrase, um, maybe once applied to retail, that it, it's overbuilt and under demolished. It's at least under demolished in that sense. Yeah. I still think there's good demand out there for office, but probably not the inventory, the size inventory that's existed for the last two to three decades. Yeah. And like you said, it's probably different for, for different markets. And you know, some of the Southeast markets, for example, in Texas, some, yeah. some of these markets just doing extremely well, right? A lot of population growth, a lot of businesses moving you know, Miami's a good example. It's, it's doing well. Uh, some of the other cities in in Florida, and then we're headquartered here in, in Atlanta, and obviously we're having some struggles, especially with our larger suites and our larger high rise buildings. But but a lot of the smaller ones uh, are are doing really well. Where are some opportunities potentially in the office sector around the country? Is it is it in is it in distress? Is it in great markets? You know, where where might we think about? I think it, it sort of depends on your risk appetite and where you want to play. But I, I think there are two ways that mm -hmm. I, I reasonably see to play this. I do think that there are those markets in, in what I'll call the growth parts of the country, predominantly in the South, where you do see population movement, you see job relocation, you mm -hmm. see companies growing. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely believe that that is, it's an ongoing phenomenon. I think mm -hmm. some people woke up one morning and said, oh, this is only happening in the last four years with the pandemic? Like, no, like mm -hmm. this is a multi-decade generational phenomenon. So mm -hmm. let's not let's let's not pretend like this hasn't been going on. Mm -hmm. And that gives me confidence because I don't think that this is just a flash in the pan sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is there is good opportunity based on that growth trajectory. But I'm not also of the mind that this is, you know, the apocalypse for the New Yorks and Bostons and DCs and Chicago's of the world. I think you have to pick your spots a little more carefully in those markets. But I can't imagine waking up in a world where those really big, important metro economies in the United States just don't exist anymore. Right. Like, that's not a world that I want to wake up in. That has no. huge negative implications. Yeah. So whether you like those cities or you don't like those cities, there is a lot of economic activity that occurs in those places. I don't see it relocating away completely, but I don't think to the point that I made earlier that this is going to be the office market of the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s. I think yeah. it's probably going to be smaller. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably going to be newer, higher quality, more concentrated. And I do think you have to pick your spots carefully. But I don't think that means that, you know, we're going to wake up one morning and the Manhattan skyline will just be all residential buildings and right. 
you know, young kids partying like it's 1999. People will still <laughs> go into offices, right. even if it's if it looks and feels different than it did a generation or two ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting to see uh, the folks investing in office that, you know, some uh, are turning keys back in at the same time they're buying. And, you know, it's it's like some of these groups are getting office properties for what, 50 percent, 30 percent of replacement cost. And as that demand finally comes back, it should be a windfall for them. It, it's going to be interesting to see. How long of a window do you think it is? I'm, I'm talking to folks. I'm saying, look, I think 2024 is probably going to go down as the year that you should have bought office. Of course, you, a lot because a lot of people are afraid of the fallen knife, which, by the way, I hate that analogy. The fallen knife. I just hate people <laughs> Sounds so me painful. That. <laughs> thing. And I call them, like, when you buy this, Michael, I'm not buying a fallen knife. Why are you calling I don't know me? where that came from, but I just feel like it predates me in this industry. <laughs> oh, it's, it, it's something I used to hate to hear. Uh, but, uh, you know, because you try to time the absolute top or bottom of anything. And go no, luck, forget it. You, no. Right. If, you know, if you're buying low, you're, you're, you're buying low if you have the ability to hold on. But is, you know, is, is this is is new supplies really going to stop? Right. And it's going to take, what, a year, couple of years, maybe three years for that to really dry up. Those things were in the in the started kind of have to finish. Right. Right. Uh, but if no news, a lot of new supply is, is slowed down, you know, that and then some of these buildings are demolished. Some of them are converted. Then your natural demand comes back. Is this a five year window? Is this a three year window? Is it two uh, and overall? It, it's at least a few years for this to play out. Yeah. The way I think about it is, mm -hmm. and there's pretty good research on this, when you see mm -hmm. micro economies like the office market go through this kind of exogenous shock, mm -hmm. it takes a while for it to stop reverberating, yeah. you know, depending upon you know the research you're looking at, potentially five, six years. Mm -hmm. So if we date the beginning of this shock as, let's call it the beginning of the pandemic mm -hmm. in the US, which is already four years ago, if you can believe yeah, that. Yeah, that's amazing. We probably have a couple years for this to continue. Mm -hmm. And so that to me suggests that there is probably still a good market environment. Again, mm -hmm. it's not for the faint of heart. It, right. it certainly requires a little bit of a risk appetite relative right. to someone who's in a, a lower risk tolerance position. But I, I, I don't want to throw the baby out with it. Here's another bad analogy, the baby <laughs> out with the bathwater. As a parent, I mean, I'm like, really, do I want to say that? But, but I, I really don't because, I, again, I don't think we're going to wake up in a world where no one goes into an office and an office just isn't a part of a, mm -hmm. of a functioning economy. If anything, as the economy becomes more advanced, more services oriented, it suggests to me that those kind of places will have a more prominent role. I think the one thing that always gets discounted in this is that unless something really goes awry over time, the population of the United States will be larger. The number of people working in the United States will be larger. The number of people working in what's traditionally an office using job will be larger. Yeah. And at some point, simply by dint of mathematics, that's going to create more demand for office space. Right. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in six to 12 months, yeah. but unless you think the economy is not going to continue to grow along that trajectory, which I, I can't imagine, then it's really foolish to say office demand will never increase at some point. Maybe mm. it doesn't grow like it did again once upon a time, but I can't imagine that we wake up 10 years from now and everybody's working remotely at their kitchen counter. If yeah. that's the case, then again, something's gone horribly wrong in the economy and I probably won't 
worry about that forecast being off versus whatever else is causing us to be stuck at home. Yeah, it's uh, the, the work from home stuff. Uh, when I had to, when the, I guess the government forced us to do it for a little while, and it's just, I, I just, just hated it. It was terrible. Where do you think there are some opportunities sector-wise out there in, in the U.S. today? You know, it, it's funny because you mentioned this before. Mm-hmm. I actually think most property types outside of office are holding up better than the average person thinks. Mm-hmm. I think the average person probably just hears about the office market and extrapolates from there. Commercial real estate. And, 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 yeah, right. Oh, all of commercial real estate is, yeah. is a disaster. I don't know yeah. why you would want to invest in that. Yeah. And this isn't, you know, this isn't, say, the SNL crisis where it was a lot of, of you know, widespread trouble. This, to me, is is very concentrated in the office market. And I'm not saying that 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 all property types are coming through this unscathed, mm-hmm. but I still like industrial. I think industrial mm-hmm. is still the darling of commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. I still think it outperforms, not, not just because of what happened over the last few years with, with the pandemic, but industrial is really transforming. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time when I started in this business, which is longer ago than I usually admit in polite company, Industrial was so boring. It was just a right. box to store other boxes. Yeah. I remember going on industrial market tours thinking, I'm so bored. Can we just go to the mall? Can we do a retail market tour or something yeah. like that? But now you go into an industrial building, a, a warehouse distribution facility, and it's sophisticated. There's a lot of technology. There's mm-hmm. those evil Roombas driving around, you know, mm-hmm. picking up boxes and putting them on conveyor belts. And as a consequence, industrial is becoming more important to the economy. So its value overall is going up, even if demand is cooling off relative to where it once was. So I still think there are excellent opportunities industrial. I still like residential and apartment because we have a very significant structural housing shortage in the US. I don't see that getting fixed anytime soon. I I, I still think that almost anywhere you play, it's pretty good. There are, there are certain pockets and submarkets where Development might have gotten over its skis a little bit with the migration story of the last few years. But by and large, most places you look in the United States, either for rent or for sale housing, there is a notable dearth of both of those. And I think um, maybe you don't always knock the cover off the ball there, but it's it's going to be hard to lose money on residential over the next 10 to 20 years because I just don't see us riding the ship on that. Right. And then even retail, you mentioned retail. I've I've always liked retail. Again, it's a fun property type to go tour around. Yeah. Even these days, I still enjoy going into retail centers and looking around. I think it's very quietly performed well in a way that even market participants sometimes forget. Depending upon whose data set you look at, yeah. vacancy rates are at or near historically low levels yeah. uh, across subtypes, even in the mall space, which again where is where I think a lot of people want to really paint with a broad brush. You go into some of the dominant class A malls around the country, which I try to do when I'm when I'm traveling, doing even my own informal market tours, not a lot of vacancy to be found. If anything, a lot of the vacancy that you see is just kind of obsolete space or, or inferior space that yeah. tenants don't want to pay for. So yeah. I think there are actually really good opportunities almost everywhere you look. You just probably have to recalibrate expectations a little bit after the last 10 to 20 years with appreciation becoming a more prominent part of real estate returns because of structurally declining interest rates. That game is probably over, but I don't think it precludes anyone from going out and participating in in any of the major property types and and even hotels. I think hotels is another one where it's probably held up better than people would have thought. You know, travels come roaring back, certainly on 
on the personal side, the leisure side, but even on the business side, most flights that I get on these days, they just, they love telling you that there are no seats, that it's going to be a full flight, which I just expect to hear now. It's right. just kind of a standard thing when I'm getting on an airplane, which I do pretty frequently. So yeah. I actually think the space is, is much better positioned than everyone who wants to just say, oh, cause I hear it all the time, even on, on, um, what should be sophisticated media channels? I hear people say things like, oh, commercial real estate is terrible. And I think, yep. no, that's a very unfair characterization. Yeah, we we just put a little self-storage property on the market. It's getting tremendous activity. And we just put a, a foreclosed industrial property on the market. It is just off the charts. People, people love it. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of positive momentum. And uh, you, you're familiar with self-storage. What do you think about that sector? I love self-storage. Yeah, yeah. I have always loved self-storage. The one thing that we still do better than everybody else in the world, in the US, is we're still the best consumers. We love our, our stuff. Right. I mean, we like services. We like going out to bars and restaurants mm -hmm. and discotheques or whatever the cool kids are up to these days, yeah. but we still love our stuff and we don't like to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. To me, I think when I look at self-storage, the real risk is in the development phase because once you lease up and stabilize a property, mm -hmm. people really don't want to deal with the inconvenience of moving their stuff. Right. They're really willing to countenance, a, as long as it's not inordinate, a, a pretty decent rent increase mm -hmm. because it's usually pretty small relative to the other expenses, right. even if it's large on a percentage basis. And it's a big inconvenience to move their stuff to another facility, right. but they don't want to get rid of their stuff. Right. They, they have this detachment to it that's that there's a very strong psychological phenomenon that says people don't want to have to go out and reacquire something that they already own. There's almost this, you know, the joke I make about it, it's like, um, you know, your grandmother's lamp, right? Mm -hmm. She used to read you Goodnight Moon under her lamp, but mm -hmm. the thing is hideous <laughs> and your significant other doesn't want it in your living space. Right. And you might actually electrocute yourself if you plug it in, <laughs> but you can't get rid of it because your grandmother will smite you from on high. So you keep it in the self-storage yeah. facility. That's the kind of thing that all kidding aside, that's what people do. And so I love self-storage. I actually mm -hmm. think it's it's probably my favorite of the secondary property types. Mm -hmm. Again, you get through that, that development lease up phase where yeah. there's a little bit of risk and it almost becomes like clipping coupons at that point. It becomes very bond-like. Yeah. Well, it's a good point. I had some stuff in storage and a company uh, raised the rates and I and I looked at the rates and it made me kind of consider what I was paying. To your point, it's not a big bill, right? Uh, but then I looked at the the value of the the stuff I'm storing <laughs> and what it cost me to store it for a year. And I'm like, am I an idiot? Yeah, you know? the, that's what the average person should do, right? Yeah. They should do some kind yeah. of annuity calculation yeah. or, or discounted yeah. cash flow of yeah. the rent versus the value of the stuff yeah. that's in the storage facility. Yeah. Like I could give it away, <laughs> stop the bill, and I'd be better off. <laughs> right. That's, that was probably win-win for everybody. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, I, Ryan, it's so good to talk to you. And, and and while I have you on the show, I want to get your thoughts on AI, you know, and its impact on, I guess, the world, but on commercial real estate and the practitioners out there. What, what do you think? I am thrilled that you brought this up because mm -hmm. I was once a skeptic of it, mm -hmm. but now I'm a believer. And, and I say that as someone who works for an organization mm -hmm. where we are using AI full bore. Like we are, it, it's not the only thing that we're doing. I don't mm. want to overstate it. You know, yeah. we haven't, you know, this isn't like war games. We're not taking humans out of the loop or anything. Mm. Um, but I've already seen the kinds of things that it can do. There are just some things 
that computers can do better than people. And I think it's okay to admit that. Mm -hmm. The sheer brute force number crunching power mm -hmm. that the computers can do. Uh, and I'm, I pride myself on being a math and data geek. Right? This, is, this is what I do for a living. So if anybody should feel ostensibly threatened by this, it should be someone like me. But yeah. I feel liberated by it because it frees me up to do higher order next level thinking that I don't have to spend so much of my time just writing code and crunching numbers. But I will tell you, it, the amount of data that it can actually churn through in the periods of time that it can churn through, and I mean this literally, I'm not sure how many lifetimes it would take me if I just dedicated myself to crunching numbers mm -hmm. that the computer can do just running for hours or maybe even overnight. Right. So I am a believer in this. We are using it to do um, market ranking, market targeting, forecasting rents, helping us score in terms of where we want to place our bets, in terms of where we think about portfolio strategy. Mm -hmm. um, the enormity of it is just, it's almost beyond the ability of your brain to comprehend because the, the volume of data and the amount of math that goes into it just gets mind numbing. But again, I'm, I'm a convert to this. I am a disciple now. I've seen the power that it brings. I think at some point, you know, the analogy I use is you're either going to be on the train or you're going to be underneath it. You can <laughs> you can doubt it all you want, but if you don't think that this is the future, you might wake up um, and the future's kind of run over you a little bit. And so I'm happier to be on the train and in, in the vanguard of of you know what we're doing in this industry than being where I was before, which was a little bit of a skeptic. And and to be fair, I always played around with it myself. I, I would never put myself out there as a data scientist, but I learned enough about it to know how serious it was and how transformative it can be. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're going to see it really start to become a more pervasive part of, of our industry. I know it's starting to seep into people's lives in mm -hmm. more informal kind of entertainment oriented ways, mm -hmm. uh, but I think increasingly you are going to see organizations waking up to the idea that this is very, very powerful, even in a very relationship oriented business. Again, I don't want to take people out of the process. Yeah. This is still, this is still, I think the best analogy, the analogy that we use is it's it's like a compass. Mm -hmm. I want it to point me in directions that maybe I wouldn't otherwise go in mm -hmm. and point me away from directions where I might, you know, be seduced by an experience I had there or, or just some kind of um, psychological thing. Like, oh, I've been to Dallas before. I know what it's like. Or I've been to Seattle. That's where we really want to utilize this. I don't want to ever take human judgment out of the process, but it really, I think, gives us an advantage in a way that I don't think people who are not utilizing it can even appreciate how powerful it can be. Yeah. And I want to, I want to try to use it more and learn more about it. That's, that's cool that you've had the opportunity to, to do that and have done it. And I saw a um, description of a property the other day and, uh, and I knew the property. And when I read the description, I went, uh, that's artificial intelligence. That, <laughs> that property is not that nice. <laughs> and that's and that's where I think some of the skepticism comes in. Yeah. Some people have used mm. ChatGPT and they're mm -hmm. like, oh, it didn't give me the right answers. Mm -hmm. Or I was talking to a bot on a you know shopping site that I was using and mm -hmm. it wasn't conversing with me appropriately. Yeah. We're in the very nascent stages of this. So I yeah. don't want to overstate what it can do right now. But I'm usually pretty decent at peering into the crystal ball and seeing where the world is going. I can't imagine that we wake up in a world five, 10, 15 years from now where this just isn't a more yeah. prominent part of how our lives function and how the industry functions. I'm hoping that that future doesn't look like 
Terminator or the Matrix, but <laughs> um, but I don't see us putting the genie back in the bottle here. Yeah. I just think it's too powerful, uh, produces too many insights uh, that that human beings would, like I said, I pride myself on being a hardcore data geek and number cruncher. Mm. I'm not sure I have enough lifetimes to calculate the, the you know run churn through the kind of data that yeah. that our programs can can churn through in a in a day or a night. Well, I know the evil doers out there have uh, gotten on the AI bandwagon. I'm noticing now my uh, cyber threats emails coming through, trying the phishing and all of that. The way they used to, you could look at them and go, okay, that's that's a bot. That that's cyber problem. Do not click on that. Now you can get get these emails, and it sounds like it's really someone of influence and knows what they're talking about. And then you read through it enough, you go, wait, no, that's, that's, that's AI written. <laughs> yeah, it scares me too, because it's almost like any other technology. It really mm -hmm. depends how you use it. Like mm -hmm. their history is riddled with technologies that could either be incredibly beneficial, but at the same time, incredibly destructive. Yeah. I think AI is just going to be another one of those things. Yeah. I think it has- Like social media. <laughs> I, I we should talk. I might I might I might think social media is a massive net negative for society. But but you know things like the internet. Like mm -hmm. the internet is so great and transformative, mm -hmm. but clearly you can use it for insidious things. Right, it's not right, right. um so I, I look at it as one of those things that I I I try not to cast judgment on it. I mm -hmm. just see it as this is the future. It's probably inevitable. Mm -hmm. How do we utilize this for for good, for for benefit mm -hmm. without being naive and saying, oh, nobody will ever use this for, because I, I you know, all kidding aside, you know, I, I, you know, really came of age in the nineties when the internet was in its nascent stages and people talked about, oh, what a utopia this is going to be. And everybody's going to get their information and it'll mm -hmm. flatten the earth. And, and some of that happened, but I think they, those utopians really discounted all of the really insidious things that you can do with the yeah. internet. AI, I feel like, is going to be in that camp. There are going yeah. to be some amazing things in, in science and research and technology and medicine that can potentially transform people's lives. But I also think that it's got the potential, if it's not utilized correctly, to, to do some dangerous things. And that, to mm. me, is more of a constant throughout history than, yeah. than an exception to the time we live in. Yeah, it's interesting, the analogy of thinking back in the 90s and when the internet started booming, and uh, and and in my view of AI now, I probably don't know enough about it, and I probably, and I know I don't. But when I look back at the '90s, I remember when I first saw the internet and thought about how oh, I'm doing a website. Well, I had dial-up speed, and I didn't get that. I, it it didn't compute to me at all. I couldn't. It was like watching paint dry, and, and my <laughs> mind moved too quickly. So I'm like, "This is terrible. I, there's there's no way this is any good." And then I got fast internet speed. I went, "Wow, this is fantastic." what you can do with this. And I almost think that's a good analogy for what AI can do, because mm -hmm. I think that the limitation for AI was just the the ability to crunch numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, first we had to codify those numbers, right? There are a lot of things that have been occurring throughout history that we just haven't been tracking, that we haven't been quantifying now that we do. But the other thing is, I mean, even in just the 20 years or so since I was in graduate school, the computing power has just, I, I don't know the multiple that it's increased, but I mean, I remember being in graduate school, you know, building models, econometric models to crunch numbers. And I basically have to use one of the university's computers and it would have to run for a while or overnight. And I'd have to come back and check it to make, now we could do that easily remote using, you know, licensing massive computing power from, from some third party provider. And mm -hmm. it's just all of these semiconductors running simultaneously that are just yeah. 
it, it's just, it's mind numbing, even to somebody who, who, again, I do this for a living, not so much the data science part, but building models and crunching numbers. It's just, it's amazing to me, the kind of massive increase in computing power. Again, I, I'm somebody can quantify it better than me who's actually closer to the technology, but that to me is almost like the equivalent of, of what happens with fast internet. Yeah. The fast computing power that we now have. I mean, there are the laptop that I use at home that I, I build one of my, my main sort of macro econometric model that I run on is more powerful than the servers that I was utilizing in yeah. graduate school once upon a time. Right. Again, I'm not young, but I'm not yeah. that old. Right. I can only imagine what the computers are going to be like over the next 10, 15, 20 years and, and their ability to crunch massive amounts of data. I could talk to you all day. We're going to have to wrap this up soon because we, you and I have places to go, right? You're, we're, you're speaking somewhere else and we're going to go there. But I, I've got to ask you your opinion of this. You're talking about AI, computing power, uses a lot of power. We got a lot of push toward uh, electric vehicles. We have had some markets and cities where they've had electrical grid problems um, if we're going to use more electricity for all this AI and computer power, we're going to use it all for more of our vehicles and things. Uh, is, is there any challenge there potentially? Absolutely. I think uh -huh. electricity generate, you're already seeing that right in some mm -hmm. markets. Mm -hmm. There are, I can tell you anecdotally, there are already places where we've looked at deals and one of the selling points was, oh, it's already got dedicated power and this place has cut off. The ability to, you know, for, for you to actually run a line to, to a facility. Mm. That is something that we're going to have to seriously think about because mm. you don't need me to tell you, but we have pretty old facilities and infrastructure as far as electricity generation mm -hmm. and transmission lines. Mm. We're going to have to start to seriously think about what that means for a very electrified environment. Mm -hmm. And you're right. The more we have electric vehicles and the more that we're going to charge them, the more we're using artificial intelligence to actually, I mean, those data centers, uh, I don't know how how often that, that you personally encounter them, but they also a draw power. a lot of power from the system to crunch those numbers. Yeah. This is going to be, you know, somebody who's closer to that infrastructure than me will have to figure this out. Mm -hmm. But that is going to be a challenge of the 21st century. We yeah. are going to have to figure out how to come up with the power for all of these things. Because again, we're already at the margin seeing some challenges there. I can't imagine as as you know electric vehicles become mandated and AI really starts to take off, what that's going to do to the demand for electricity generation. Yeah. My guess is it's going to go up and it's going to go up by a lot. Somebody who is uh, is really well-versed in, in that kind of infrastructure is going to have to do some serious homework to figure yeah. that out. Yeah. What would your final thoughts be, Ryan, for 2024 for our commercial real estate audience? You know, I'm I'm... I'm cautiously optimistic about mm -hmm. this year. I'm not a dour person to begin with, but given where we've been for the last 18 months or so, I understand that people have probably not had the most fun time in the commercial real estate industry, but but I do feel like the tide is turning. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentals have held up generally pretty well. It's really been a capital markets phenomenon that has really caused the disruption. And a lot of that has just come from how quickly and, and how aggressively the Fed has raised rates. As that starts to shift, which there's never any guarantees in economics, but there's a much higher probability that the Fed moves into tightening stance over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, that will put wind in the sails of, of the capital markets environment. And then you'll start to see both of those trending in the right direction. That is a very powerful force for not just you know, positive fundamentals, but really positive real estate returns, a positive capital markets environment, a more positive lending environment. 
it might not happen overnight. As I said, it probably takes a little bit of fits and starts to get there. But I feel like the the optimism that I feel over over the medium term uh, is better than I felt in a while. And I, I and barring some kind of random shock, I think even if we have some bumps in the economic road, we will get there. Maybe yeah. not as fast as some people would like. Uh, but if there's one thing I know, this is a this is a cyclical business. I don't think that cycle has been broken, and I just think we're waiting for the cycle to turn, and then we should be off to a much more attractive phase than what the last phase has been like. Well said, and I like it, Ryan. Thank you for joining us. Always my pleasure to to, to always my pleasure to chat, but really yeah. my pleasure to be in studio. It does, like I said, feel like a, a bit of a post pandemic homecoming. There you go. Well, thank you, and thank you for joining us around the country. Please let us know what you think. And if you will, share the show with others. Pay it forward, right? Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bullet Realty. For commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the Southeast U.S., contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com by Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. And by Lumet. For senior housing, healthcare, and multifamily financing, visit lumet.com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.